please go ahead and open your Bible as we look at our parable for tonight. We're doing uh, maybe the most famous parable. You know, I don't know, you, you look at a few of these and you, they kind of are battling for first place, right? Um, when you look at the parable of the, of the soils, you know, perhaps, and you look at the good Samaritan, you know, you kind of, which is the best well-known parable. This makes a strong case for it. So we're in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be reading verses 25 through 37. So let's look at that together right now. It says this, uh, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that question because it's super important. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord for us tonight. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, we come to you and we are thankful that we can gather. We, Lord, we've just come out of a uh, of this last week uh, where we really focus on thanksgiving and gratitude and the blessings that come from you. And Lord, this is just another time, another opportunity to be thankful, both individually and as a church, uh, where we can gather, we can open up your word, we can hear you talk to us and teach us and help us to become more like your son. Such a great, great honor, such a great, great privilege, such a great act of grace and love from you, our good, good, good Father. So Lord, teach us tonight. Uh, help my words be the words that only you want to be said. And I pray that your spirit teaches all of us uh, and grows us closer to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
You know, the, the, the great thing about God's Word, about this book right here, uh, is what it says about itself in the book of Hebrews, right? That it's living and active. Amen? So, you know, I don't know about you. I've read this parable. I've taught this parable a lot, you know, over many years. And this last week or so, as I've really, you know, been, been really looking at it and studying and praying, um, this whole parable got framed up for me in a different way that I wasn't expecting that I'm, I'm excited to, to share with you guys tonight. Um, it's, it's just really neat to see, no matter how often you come to God's Word, there's always something new that the Spirit teaches you. Isn't that great? So, it's so good. So as we look at this parable of the Good Samaritan, many people think it's about many things, right? It's about kindness. Uh, it's about compassion. Uh, it's about social justice, right? Um, and as we look at the parable... All of those things, all of those lessons, all of those principles are in it, but I'm not convinced, and I, and I think by the time we're done tonight, we're going to see that that is not the main thrust of this parable, just for us to be more compassionate, you know, justice-minded Christians, right? I, I don't think that's the main thrust. Now, if we look at the parable in isolation, just the parable, and ignore the greater context, that's all we're ever going to learn from it. But remember, Jesus never teaches anything without a purpose. And he was very specific um, in, in the context of this and the audience of this and how he taught. Okay? You know, many people also look at this parable and they want to allegorize the parable. Okay? Um, which I'm going to tell you, if that's what you do to this parable, you're going to completely miss the point. Going to totally miss the point if you start saying, okay, well, Jesus is a Samaritan. You know, we're the guy that gets beat up. Jerusalem is heaven. And you do all this stuff, okay? Let me tell you, that is bad Bible study. That's bad Bible study. Because if you do that, if that's how you interpret this parable, you know what it does? It completely empties its meaning to the people who heard it when Jesus taught it. And he taught it to the people who were listening. We're overhearing that. I mean, so if this parable was just an allegory, it wouldn't have made a hill of beans to the people who were listening to him 2,000 years ago. So let's not do bad Bible study. Let's do good Bible study, okay? Let's do that. So, um, you know, this whole teaching in here, you know, because the great commandment is in here, right? You know, when Jesus asked the lawyer, how do you read the law? He says, love the Lord your God. Uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. We find that also in Matthew 22. We find that also in Mark 12. But those are not necessarily sister passages of this passage. You know, Jesus taught the same thing over and over. And so those were different circumstances in, Ma in Matthew and Mark in which he was talking on the great commandment versus where we are tonight. So as you read your Bible, you need to understand that there are different contexts, there are different situations, there are different audiences which give us different thrusts of the meaning of what God wants us to get. You follow me? Hey, good, good. So like I said earlier, Jesus never says or, done, or does anything without purpose. And the parable here that we're looking at is a direct response to a very direct question, 
We have to keep that in mind. I know a couple of times I've taught in this series, I've said the same thing, because Jesus tells a story in response to what's going on around him. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment to really pull back and see what's going on in the chapter because it provides us a framework into how we can understand what he taught and what it means for his audience and what it means for us. So let's understand the framework. So let's look at Luke chapter 10 because this is all connected. Okay, so in Luke chapter 10, the first 12 verses, we're not going to read it all, or else we will be here until next Thursday. Um, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, is basically Jesus sending out the 72. You may be familiar with this story. He pairs them up, and he sends them out into towns into which he is going to be going to. So they're kind of like forerunners, right? He's kind of giving them a John the Baptist type of ministry. Now, uh, verse 9 is, in this, in this first section, is really key, um, where he's talking about the kingdom is near. Okay, so what you need to understand is when he sends out the 72 in the first 12 verses, when you look at verse 9, their message, you know, he's talking about he, going and doing healing, and he says, proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. This is a gospel kingdom message, love of God coming message, Jesus is king message, okay? That's what's happening in the first 12 verses. Now we look in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, Jesus has some warnings going on here. Uh, Luke 10, 13 through 16 is Jesus is saying there is going to be judgment coming on those who don't repent, Judgment coming on those who don't repent. Pastor Mark just finished a couple weeks series on Sunday morning talking about afterlife. Judgment's coming if you don't repent and believe. That's just the truth of the matter. Verse 16 is really important. So Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So in verse 16, we have this whole idea of reject. But in the big picture, listen, we're just the messengers. We're just the messengers. They're, you know, you share the gospel with somebody and they kind of say no to you in some way, whether it being a nice way or a mean way, it's really not a rejection of you. It's not really a rejection of me. It's ultimately a rejection of Christ and the one who sent him, his Father. So that's what Jesus is talking about there. And now we get to verses uh, 17 through 20. This is where the 72 come back. They went out. They did their forerunning ministry. And they return really excited because some really awesome things happen. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. These guys are pumped up because their message was working. Right? They were empowered by the Spirit sent by Jesus. But we get to verse 20. And verse 20 is super important. Jesus teaches us really what we really should be rejoicing in the most. You know, it's this whole idea, don't be rejoicing in your works, okay? You should be rejoicing in your salvation. 
Hey, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Yeah, great things happened. But remember, it is about salvation. It's not about works. Which really, Jesus, yeah, you got to read what Jesus is saying here. He's like, man, this is a whole other idea of just, you know, where he just layers things with grace, right? Works don't save us, do they? No. Grace saves us through our faith in Christ. The next section here before we get to the parable uh, is in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. And um, we see our key verse right away in verse 20. I want just to want to read it to you. It says, in that same hour, right after he just said the, you know, the things before that, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus just rejoicing. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So in verse 21, this whole key concept of the wise and understanding, being contrasted with childlike faith. He's revealed to little children, hidden from the wise and understanding. This is really important for us as we go into our parable, okay? So when we look at Luke chapter 10 in its entirety, what we see is that this whole greater context of chapter 10 is about evangelism and salvation. It's about evangelism and salvation. Can you see that with where we've reviewed so far? It's about the lost being found, the dead coming to life, the wicked becoming holy. It's about evangelism and salvation. You see, laborers are sent to work. They're sent out to preach. They're sent out to minister for a harvest of souls. Then repentance from sin and self is required. Okay? Repentance from sin and repentance from self is required. You know, this is about reception versus rejection. And then we end, this, we end this section, I'm just summarizing here, is what matters most is not what you've done for Jesus, but what matters most is that you get to be with Jesus. You catch that? That's what matters most. Not what you've done, but who you are with. So, Jesus is saying all these things, and there's a crowd around listening to him. There's a crowd around listening to him who can hear everything that he's saying. Now, how do we know that? Well, look in verse 23. He says all these things. You know, he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately. Then he goes on, you know, blessed are the eyes that see and ears that hear. So he's in a crowd, everyone's listening. Then he pulls his boys to the side. He said, hey guys, let me, let me talk to you guys just for a minute. So that's what's going on. 
Now, in this context, in the context of the crowd that's listening, in the context of Jesus turning aside and talking to his disciples privately, a guy stands up and asks Jesus a question. Guy stands up, okay? The lawyer comes on the scene. This lawyer is an expert and teacher of Mosaic law. So the five books of Moses and all the laws in there, this guy is an expert on that. He teaches this. He was in the crowd. He was intently listening to all that Jesus was saying. He heard the stories of the 72 coming back and how Jesus was responding and guiding and discipling them. You know, he may, he may have even you know, leaned in a little bit to kind of hear what Jesus said privately to his disciples. But what he was doing was looking for an opportunity to showcase how wise and understanding he was. He was looking to trip Jesus up and to make Jesus look like a fool. Because this is the guy that's the expert in Mosaic Law. You know, because, I mean, I could hear him thinking, right? Hey, I'm the lawyer around here. I'm the expert in Mosaic Law, in the very Word of God. You know, so who, who knows Mosaic Law? Better than a lawyer. Better than a Mosaic lawyer. Well, too bad the guy didn't realize he was talking to the Word of God. <laughs> right? The guy who inspired Moses to write all that stuff down. He didn't know what he was getting himself into. Right? Um, so let's look at the question that the lawyer asked Jesus. So the question of the lawyer reveals the purpose of the parable. And so we look at the context of what's been happening. Um, I'll tell you what, it becomes even more obvious now. So remember, we've just set up 24 verses that are about evangelism and salvation. And then what does the guy ask? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. We're still talking about salvation, aren't we? That's what we're talking about. So you see, this parable is much more than about kindness and mercy and compassion and social justice. This parable is about evangelism and salvation. That's what this parable is about. But specifically, it is about Jesus personally witnessing to this lawyer. That's what this parable is about. Jesus is helping this man to understand his need to be saved. That is what's going on in this parable, helping him to understand that he needs to repent of his sin and receive eternal life by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. Jesus hears this guy ask this question in light of all of what he's been saying. So this question is going through Jesus' head. How do I get this guy to understand that he's lost? I need to help this guy understand he needs to be saved. So that he enters this dialogue with the lawyer. So this question that he asks is not a, a one-off, you know, unique question. This was a common question back in the day. You know, a, a common question to Jesus even. Nicodemus asked Jesus this question. The rich young ruler asked Jesus this question. And each time Jesus gets asked this question by an individual, 
He answers according to who that person is and what their need is. Jesus is very specific. You know, Jesus had a deep theological conversation with Nicodemus because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. I mean, he was one of the religious leaders back then. Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. I mean, he was a high-up-there guy. And he emphasized to Nicodemus about being born again. He challenged the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions. He didn't say that to everybody. He said it to this guy, though. Jesus lovingly and patiently shows them their wrong belief and shows them the idols in their life, the, the things, the concepts, the ideas that are not based in the truth of God. He shows them those things. He helps them see that they are lost so that they can be found. It's a great act of love by Christ. Now, listen, there isn't necessarily a boilerplate for evangelism, okay? I mean, there's all kinds of, if you've been around a while in church world, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to share the gospel, right? I mean, you got the Romans road, you got the four spiritual laws, you got this, that, and the other thing, right? Uh, there's all kinds of ways out there. Now, there's, there's some basics, right? There's some foundational stuff. There's sin, right? There's repentance. There's faith in Jesus alone, right? You got, you got those things, but how do those things get communicated in a way where they can be best received and not rejected? And see, until the message is made specific for the person you're talking to, it's never dynamic. It's never dynamic. Now, ultimately, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is how, I mean, you know, Pastor Mark or someone can be up here and at the end of a service, you know, you know we preach and we share the gospel and we have a call to respond to salvation. And a lot of people can raise their hand. A lot of people can stand up. A lot of people can pray the prayer. And all of them to a person says, man, I thought he was talking right to me today. Right? I mean, that's, that's ultimately, that's the work of the Holy Spirit going on there. So, let's, um, let's I want to look at a couple things here, too, as, we, as we're talking about this whole idea of, of evangelism. You know, because there are, there are a couple, couple categories. We got easy, and we got hard. Who are the people that it's easy to witness to? It's, it's easy to evangelize and, and win to the Lord. You know, you know who those people are? Anyone have a guess of who the easy people are? People who talk to you? Non-believers? Kids? Okay. Yeah. People who are in trouble? Yeah, I like your answer a lot. That's the answer I was thinking of, kind of. I mean, yeah, I mean... Listen, I really think the easiest people to evangelize are the people who already know they're lost. I mean, they know their life is messed up, right? I mean, they're searching for some kind of answer somewhere. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the, the addicts, the outcasts, you know, the ones who've made a mess of their lives in one way or another. You know, the, those are the, so, oftentimes they're the easiest people to witness to and win to the Lord because they know they need help. They're searching, like, Someone help me get out of this mess, right? 
Well, who are the hard people? Church folk. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Tell you what, the hardest people to evangelize to are the people like the lawyer, aren't they? Why? Because you know what? They got a pretty good life. They got a pretty good job. You know, they are kind of this middle, upper middle class type of people. You know, they, uh, they got good kids. They go on a good vacation every year. They're good. I mean, what, what do they need to hear a message of, you know, sin and hell and death and all that kind of stuff for? I'm good. My 401K is growing. We're going to Florida with the kids. Spring break. What are you talking about? You know, it's got a new SUV. What, what do you mean? Right? Those are the hard people to witness to, aren't they? Because their life's pretty together. Here's the deal. And then you throw in, we're in America. And we're not, while we're not in the Bible Belt, we're in the Midwest, and we're kind of downstate Illinois. So you know what? Here's the deal. A lot of these people, these hard people, these, hey, I'm pretty good people, you know what the deal is? They have just enough of Jesus to inoculate themselves to him. It's like they got their Jesus flu shot. Because you know what? They remember, oh, yeah, I remember going to VBS when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I remember praying some prayer that pastor. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, uh, I've given money to the church before. I, I helped serve soup at that soup kitchen. Right? They, they got, you, you ask them about some stuff in the Bible. Yeah, I know that story. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, rose again. Yeah, I go to church that weekend. They have just enough of Jesus to inoculate themselves. They're the hard people to witness and evangelize to. You know, they're the ones who need to be shown how lost they are in all of their goodness. And that is what Jesus is doing with this lawyer because he loves this lawyer. You know, the lawyer asked the question of what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, he asks it with a terrible intention, right? I mean, because he, 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 he's not really wanting to know because he already does know. He, I mean, he, he's an expert in Mosaic law. He's trying to trap Jesus, trying to trip Jesus up. He's wanting to test Jesus. Right? That's what he says. You know, he said to him, who's written the law? How do you read it? He answers, and then he wants to justify himself later. I mean, he's, this whole thing is a game that this lawyer is trying to play with Jesus. Jesus isn't playing the game. Jesus is going after this guy's heart. He's not going to get played. Jesus sees right through it right through the game, reaches right into this guy's soul, okay, and asks him, okay, let's go on your turf, expert on Mosaic law. How do you understand it? You asked me the question, well, what do you know? Well, the guy answers rightly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you answered right. Ding, ding, ding. $10,000 of the winner. Eternal life may be yours. So the guy, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is known as the Shema, which means here. It's the first word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, Jews prayed this all the time, every day. They would stand up in the synagogue and they would say this from the depths of their souls with a loud voice. This was their prayer. So he quotes that and then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I love the end of the verses, and I am the Lord your God. Just so you know, this is coming from me. So, these two ideas of loving God with everything you have, loving him holistically, and loving your neighbor unselfishly, completely summarize the entire law. You know how many laws we're talking about? Anyone know how many laws there are in the Mosaic Law? 613. 613 are summed up in these two laws. We look at, okay, let's just drill them down to 10. Let's give us all a break and drill them down to 10. Look at the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all that you are summarizes the first half of the Ten Commandments. Love your neighbor unselfishly summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments. Ravi Zacharias, you guys know Ravi Zacharias, right? Um, tremendous teacher and apologist. He has a great quote about the, about the great commandment. And he says this, one gives you basis for the next, and the second gives you the imperative for the first. Now that sounds like a smart guy said that. I would not come up with that quote, okay? But basically what Ravi Zacharias is saying is you can't do one without the other. That's what this quote means. You cannot love the Lord your God with everything about you and not love your neighbor. You can't really love your neighbor unselfishly without loving God with all that you are. They are inextricably connected. That's why they sum up the whole law. You see, the great commandment teaches us that love is the basis for life. But love is really not about doing now, it's certainly how it's manifested, but what we need to understand is that the doings of our life flow out of our beliefs. We do what we believe. We act on our beliefs. So what do you believe about life? What do you believe about people? What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about God? What you do every day, how you center the practicality of your life, demonstrates what you really believe. So what I'm going to challenge you to do is take a long look at your thoughts Take a long look at your words, your activity, your attitude, your finances, your schedule, how you treat others, and you will discover what you really believe. That's what you'll learn. Let me take 30 seconds to tell you a quick story. Um, we were talking about prayer in our teaching team meeting. Um, 
the other day, and uh, this actually just came to my mind right now as we're talking about this. Um, one thing that changed radically in my prayer life about maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, I might have told the story, I can't remember. Um, I recognized I would often pray to God with a very reverent, you know, deferential kind of position of holy God and all that kind of stuff. I rarely use the term Father. I realized. It was very convicting to me. I'm like, what? There's a disconnect with my heart going on here. I had a belief about God that leaned more to this kind of big judgment, you know, I'm going to make him happy type of God, so I'm going to work really hard, versus, no, I'm this beloved son, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the basis of my relationship with him, you know, and that changed the language of my prayer life because of a belief. You hear, you hear what I'm saying? So, I, so as, I, as I pose these questions to you about what you believe, that's what I'm trying to get at, what I want you to look at. You know, so how do I refer to God? And how does that inform how I live my life? If I believe God is this big holy God out there that, you know, that is Lord and I'm going to live to please him, I'm going to be working my tail off in ministry and teaching and trying to do things, I'm, you know, I'm wanting good things to happen. I'm wanting to honor God, but it's really deep down. There's a, perform there's a performance base in me that needed to be repented of because I wasn't resting in his love and grace and mercy. You follow? Maybe some of you guys can understand where I was coming from because maybe some of you are there too. So, um, where are we at? So what do you believe about all this stuff? So here, here's, here's the big question of belief for you. Is my life, is your life yours to do with as you want, or is your life God's to do with as he wants? That's a big question of belief for you. This is, in this, in this lens, uh, A.W. Tozer, um, great theologian and pastor, he famously wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay? So, Jesus is having this conversation with the lawyer. He asks him, you know, how do you understand the law? He quotes the great commandment, you know, loving God holistically, loving, your, loving others unselfishly. Jesus says, you answered correctly. He commends it. Um, and this word correctly, um, I'm not going to try to pretend I know how to say this Greek word because I don't, but I, what, I, what I will tell you is that the prefix of the Greek word for, that's translated as correctly, the prefix in Greek is ortho. Okay? Now, that should, like, come to mind. Uh, that should be familiar to a lot of us, right? Um, orthodontics, straightening crooked teeth, okay? Um, orthopedic, those sorts of things. So ortho means in a straight way. This concept is really important for us right now. The word correctly, ortho, means in a straight way. Jesus says he's headed down the right path. You're headed down the straight path. You're headed that way. This is the path to eternal life. That, that's what Jesus is saying to him. You know, this is the personal evangelism for the lawyer. But the question now becomes to the lawyer, how far down the right path are you willing to go? How far down this right path 
Are you willing to go? And that's a great question for us too, isn't it? We know the right thing. We know the right way to go. But do we believe deep enough in our hearts for our actions to take us all the way down the path? You follow me? The lawyer now at this point asks a second question that reveals how far he's willing to go. That's what his second question reveals. And it has the exact opposite effect than what he thought it was going to have because he forgot he was talking to the Word of God himself, right? So the second question is in verse 29. And desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, he's in classic lawyer mode here, right? I don't want to offend Fred back there. He's in classic lawyer mode, looking for the loophole. Okay, well, this, it says this, but what does this really mean, right? That's what he's, he's, he's playing the game. He's not asking this to really live this great commandment out more robustly. He's still trying to test and trap Jesus. He, the word justify here, he's desiring to justify himself. He's wanting to declare himself righteous. Wanting to declare himself righteous. He's not concerned about his neighbor. This guy's concerned about himself. He's wanting to justify himself. He's really asking, well, what's the minimum I can do? I'm like, okay, I took two steps on the path. Is that, am I good? Am I in? Right? That's what, he, that's what he's saying. Jesus answers exactly, exactly how far down the path this lawyer must go, and now we're at the parable. Guys, listen. I hope, my pr I want you guys to be good students of your Bible. So this is why I, I want to do good Bible study work with you guys. And, and just suck every good thing out of this thing, all right? So we have to set all this up because now we can really understand. So when Jesus tells this parable, he is showing how far down you need to go. This guy needs to go to inherit this eternal life. Jesus is loving this lawyer well. So he tells the parable, and here's the parable. This guy is coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip. There's a common road a dangerous road. Jesus paints a clear picture with a real place so his hearers know what he's talking about. He's setting the drama for the stage. Okay? Now, he, the, the guy's going down the road. There's all kinds of places on this road that are hidden. I always think of like a cowboy movie. You know, uh, when, you're, when you see the guys and they get ambushed, that's kind of what's going on because there's cliffs and all that kind of thing. That's what's going on here. So the robbers jump out. They beat him, and actually the verb tense here is that they kept on beating him. It wasn't like they knocked him down one time. They kept it going. They're kicking. They're doing all the thing, right? They strip him down. They took everything they had. They leave him dying on the side of the road. This man had no means or ability to do anything for himself to improve his situation. That's where this guy's at. Verses 31 and 32, we meet a couple people. A priest comes walking down the same road. Who's our, who are the priests? Priests are from the family of Aaron himself, Moses' brother, the first high priest. 
from the family of Aaron himself. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God, and they were a mediator between man and God. That's who the priests were. So this guy is walking down the road, sees him. I'm heading over this way. I'm keeping going. The next person we see on the scene is the Levite. Now, he's not a priest, but he comes from the same tribe as the priests, from the tribe of Levi. Now, what did they do? Um, the Levites, they performed all kinds of supportive tasks around the temple. They didn't do the sacrifices. They weren't the mediators, you know, but they took care of things. They helped set things up. They cleaned things. They're like the deacons of the temple, okay, in our New Testament church language. That's who the Levites were. Now, they're both described as seeing the man and passing by. On the other side. Now, again, there's another big fancy Greek word in here. I could try to impress you with it, but I'd really destroy the pronunciation. But I'll tell you what the prefix is, which you'll be very familiar with. The prefix is anti. And we know what that means, right? It means what? It means against. Now, in, in verse 33, we meet the third person on the scene, and this is where the Samaritan comes in. Who are the Samaritans? Samaritans were hated half-breeds. That's who they were. Pure-blooded Jews did not like Samaritans. So here's their history. During the divided kingdom, after Solomon, kingdom divides, northern and southern, um, they intermarried with the Gentiles. That's how they became mixed blood. They were hated by the Jews ever since. Calling someone a Samaritan was a massive insult. Jesus was called a Samaritan. John 8, 48. The Jews answered him. The Jews answered him. says, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So apparently Samaritans had demons too. Jews didn't like Samaritans. You follow me? So, this is the guy that comes on the scene. And what he does is come to where he, the man that was beaten, was. Again, I can impress you with a Greek word that I can't pronounce, but guess what the prefix is? Pro. What does pro mean? You're for. You're not against, you're for. Okay? Words are fun, everybody. So he came toward him. Once he was close, he saw him. He really saw him. He didn't just see him over there. He saw him. He saw his humanity. He saw his imago Dei. Someone, another human being made in the image of God. He saw his need, and then he had compassion. He didn't just feel sorry for him. He went far down the path of love. You see, compassion comes from seeing, which demands close proximity. That's where compassion comes from. That's what the Samaritan did. So what did Jesus just do here, though? First two people on the scene were who? priest and the Levite, okay? In 
one fell swoop, in just a couple sentences, Jesus condemned the entire Jewish religious order and made a hero of the hated half-breed. That's what Jesus did in like two sentences. It's amazing. It's a surprise the guy didn't stone him right there. But the point is, two were anti and one was pro. So what about you? When you see or hear about someone in need, are you anti are you, or are you pro? Do you pass on the other side or do you draw nearer? Are you for or are you against? Do you move away or do you move towards? Think of the poor. Think of the homeless. Think of the sick. Think of the addict. Think of the convict. Think of the immigrants. Think of anyone who is different than you are in any way. Do you move away or do you move toward? How far down the path of righteousness are you really going? The next couple verses in the parable, verses 34 and 35, we see how far the Samaritan went. He nursed the beat-up stranger, nursed him back to health, wrapped, wrapped him up, poured oil on him. He put him on his own animal, which means he got off of it, and he put this guy on it. He rode, that guy walked, you know, he walked and he let the guy ride. He brought him to an inn. He cared for him all night long because the Bible says the next day he talked to the innkeeper. He stayed up with him all night. He gave the innkeeper the equivalent of two days' wages to care for the man which some historians say could have paid for up to two months' stay at the inn. Plus, he promised to pay extra for whatever else the guy had to spend, the innkeeper had to spend. You see, loving your neighbor is going to be messy, it is inconvenient, and it is expensive. You know why? Because love demands sacrifice, which is exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. The Samaritan went far down the path of love because there was deep love in his heart for God, I believe. A title of priest, a tribe of Levi, a profession of lawyer, none of those external things is what made him or anyone else righteous. Religion does not make you righteous. Remember, Loving God holistically is inextricably tied to loving your neighbor unselfishly. We are called to love without limit because that is how God has loved us. And now we get to our final question. Jesus asked the lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Do you see what Jesus just did here? Jesus flipped this. Because the guy asked, well, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus said, well, who proved to be the neighbor? Flipped it upside down. So it's not about who's my neighbor, who's your neighbor. It's who am I loving as a neighbor? That's the issue. This is where Jesus helped the lawyer. This question helped the lawyer understand just how lost and spiritually dead, he really was. This is where Jesus finally cut through all the lawyer's goodness and got to his heart.
Jesus carefully, lovingly, and specifically took this lawyer on a journey to get him out of his head knowledge of God and his word and to help him see the true belief flows out of a heart of love that's then manifested in action. Because all theology is practical theology. If you can't live out what you believe, you have a wrong belief because it should all be rooted in love. How we practice it and the attitude by which we practice it reveals much about you and me. So the lawyer answers Jesus' question, I think, with a sense of conviction. When we read in verse 37, he answers Jesus, well, the one who showed him mercy. I'm not sure that he didn't use the term Samaritan because he was still full of hate and everything. You know, he didn't even want to say the word. I don't think that what was going on. Maybe it was, but I don't think so. I don't think he was angry and spiteful. I think conviction was beginning to settle on him, and I think he answered this pretty meekly, uh, the one who showed him mercy. It was hitting him. You see, our neighboring of people, any and every type of person that comes along our path, is proved by the mercy we show them. Not a feeling of pity, but an action of compassion. Jesus affirms his answer. He says, yeah, you go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. Go and do likewise. Jesus' response here. Now I'm going to tie this all back. Remember, this is about evangelism and salvation. Jesus' answer here, go and do likewise, is the real answer to the lawyer's initial question way back in verse 25 of teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This challenge of love to the lawyer was his personal gospel message from Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? You know, so listen, learn every lesson you can about kindness and compassion, social justice, mercy. Learn all you can from that parable. Live that out. That's good. God likes that. Okay? He wants you to do those things. But I think as we understand the greater context of this, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus loving a guy who, who almost thought himself too good enough and didn't need to be saved, and Jesus brought him to a place in a careful, personal way so he could see his need and have a chance to respond to the gospel and not reject it, to get his head out of the way of his heart. So some of you need this challenge of getting out of your head and living lives of mercy and compassion, being a neighbor, because faith isn't just about knowledge, but about loving God and others. And all of us need the reminder that people in our lives need a personal gospel message, which means you have to be pro. You have to draw near. And you got to get to know them. So how can you do that? Let me give you just a, we have a few minutes left. I'm actually early. I'm surprised at myself. How, how, how can we do that? We have, we have a great season to which there are all kinds of opportunities for you to practice this. Here in the church, outside the church, Hope Thrift Center, contact ministries, say families, I mean, whatever it would be, 
Kumler every Tuesday night. You know, I, I'm going to, they're not here, but, you know, I love reading Stan Vasek's Facebook messages on Wednesday morning because he talks about how many people were there, what Pastor Jack said, you know, the, someone, and someone who got ministered to in a special, personal way. Stan and Sheila draw close every Tuesday. They know people, and they're doing this. And it's not hard, everybody. You can do this. How can you draw close like Jesus drew close to the lawyer, like the Samaritan drew close to the beaten man? And how can you see them? How can you have compassion? How can you be that neighbor so that you have the opportunity to share a personal gospel message with them so that they can move from being dead and lost to alive and found? That's what this is all about, isn't it? Amen? So listen, grab someone, make a friend. Bring them to Calvary Christmas. Serve with us, you know, uh, at Contact Ministries on Christmas Day. Head out to Kumler on Tuesday night. Do something. You can, you can live this stuff out. And listen, because of God's word and because of God's spirit in you, you have everything that you need to do this. Amen? That's a good and gracious God, isn't it? All right. Hey, I love you guys. Let's pray together, all right? Father God, thank you for your word and for how rich and deep and alive it is and how it continues to challenge us and grow us and give us revelation of who you are and how you work and who we are in you and how we can live because of who you've made us to be. Lord, I don't know if the lawyer in this story ever got to the point of receiving you as his Savior. I pray that he did. Uh, but I really thank you for the great lesson of love that our Lord showed us. Help us to live that way. Help us to make the most of the relationships in our life with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers with the strangers that walk across our path every day, and especially maybe those ones that we want to turn away from because they don't look right or they smell right or they come from a different place than we do or something. Lord, help us to love you holistically and love everybody unselfishly. That many, many souls would be saved, and we would rejoice for eternity in heaven with them. We love you, and we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, have a good night, everybody. Love you.